The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, a professor from MIT named Darren Asimoglu. He is, how do I describe him? He's just a rock star. This guy is one of the most cited economists in the world. Uh, he, he's published uh, numerous papers. His curriculum vitae list of grants and awards, I'm not exaggerating, runs pages and pages and pages. He was the recipient of the John Bates Clark Medal in 2005. That goes out to the economist under 40 with the biggest impact, most influence on the profession. He's, you know, highly, highly regarded and, and really a rock star up at MIT. If you are at all interested in things like the impact of institutions on economies, the role of technology and globalization on inequality, and how we think about and evaluate uh, global economic growth, uh, this is a deep dive, very much wonky and in the weeds sort of conversation. Uh, anybody who's a fan of economics, anybody who is at all familiar uh, with Professor Asimoglu's work is going to really enjoy this. Uh, it's about an hour of us really getting far into the uh, weeds about all manners of economic conversation. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Darren Asimoglu. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the show, I have Professor Darren Asimoglu. He is the Killian Professor of Economics at MIT. And I'm just going to give you an abbreviated version of his curriculum vitae, because if I went over the whole thing, we wouldn't have time to ask any more questions. He got both his master's and PhD from the London School of Economics, where he stayed on as a lecturer. He has been at MIT since 1998, where he has become one of the world's most cited economists. His lists of awards and grants run pages. I cannot mention them all, but I must at least mention the John Bates Clark Medal awarded to economists under the age of 40 who are judged to have made the most significant contribution to economic thought and knowledge. He is the author of numerous books, most recently, Why Nations Fail, which was published to widespread acclaim. Professor Darren Asimoglu, welcome to Bloomberg. It's great to be here. Unfortunately, I'm no longer under 40. That's true, but in 05, when you won the uh, Clark <laughs> Award, you were under 40. So let's, let's, I'm going to go way back and start with your doctoral thesis, which I was tickled by the, by the title, Essays in Micro Foundations of Macroeconomics. What are micro foundations of macroeconomics? It's that dreaded term, but what it really means is macro is so complicated. We all struggle with it, 
and the micro foundations is to try to make it a little bit more comprehensible by looking at what's going on at the micro level. So rather than say there is this relationship between unemployment and inflation or technology and inequality, let's dig deep and try to see what's going on at the micro level. What is it that new machines are doing? What is it that workers are trying to achieve and what sorts of jobs they're looking for and what sorts of jobs they are matched for and all that. Now, now that's very, um, when you say micro, that's really going down to chunking it to small pieces. But you also write a lot about broad overarching themes such as economic institutions. And let's, let's read a quick quote of yours. Economic institutions shape the incentives to become educated, to save and invest, to innovate and adopt new technologies. It is the political process that determines what economic institutions people live under and the political institutions that determine how this process works. So let's talk a little bit about economic and political institutions. What sorts of institutions are you paying close attention to these days? When we talk of institutions, they're the broad fabric of society that, as the quote that you mentioned, tries to capture that shape opportunities and incentives. So central to our financial and economic world are the economic institutions that regulate how economic transactions take place. What sorts of loans can you give are supported by the political process. You know, if you have any chance of understanding why, say, Russian economic institutions look the way they are in Russia, that puts most political power in the hands of a single person or a small clique around him. So in the same way, if we want to understand how economic institutions in the United States have evolved, we have to think about the political process also. So, so you're referring to very broad systems like the legal system, the banking system, the educational system. These are the broad institutions that all work to shape our daily economic life. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we have to go from the broad, but sometimes you have to go down in the weeds. So if you want to think about, for instance, how the U.S. labor force is going to adapt to the ever-changing technological landscape mm -hmm. or the globalization process, it's very important to, like, to look at these macro institutions, but also such things as vocational training, disability insurance system, lack thereof, uh, lack of unemployment insurance. Those things are actually going to matter quite a bit. So it's both the micro and the macro. So why is it that some nations become democracies and the adjacent nation with similar natural resources and a similar cultural history make a turn and become either dictatorships or, or something similarly unappealing? Well, I think that's another great question. And it gets to the bottom of the great paradigmatic question of how we should think of political development. And, you know, going back to Marx and before Marx and also early 20th century sociology, most people think of it, you know, using structural factors. You know, for instance, they think, oh, if a country gets rich, then it's going to become democratic. Or 
you know, Marxist thinkers, you know, oh, if a country has enough of a quote-unquote capitalist class, they're going to become democratic. Actually, going back to our earlier discussion, it's really very much the devil's in the details. Mm -hmm. It depends on how different groups are organized and whether the ability of a narrow segment of the population that could be coming from the old communist uh, apparatchik in the case of the transition economies. It could be some landowners or businessmen, military personnel, or just like political machine uh, operators. And uh, whether they're strong enough to capture the system and set aside the demands of the broader population, or there is enough mobilization and contribution from political parties and civil society and the media so that the democratic process actually gels and is able to act as the vehicle for sort of having people's voices heard, resolving conflicts, deliberation, and so on. Let's talk a little bit about the minimum wage, which has been an area of some debate in the country. We've seen a number of cities and some states raise their minimum wage, and in some cases, pretty substantially. San Francisco, LA, Seattle. When, when Seattle raised their minimum wage, I heard all sorts of dire warnings this is it. They're going to cause a recession. They're going to cause unemployment. And yet Seattle seems to be booming. Um, what's the state of minimum wage in the United States? And, and what do we need to know about that ongoing debate? I think that's an area of considerable controversy within the economics profession. And I'm not an active participant in that debate, so I can give you sort of the outsider's perspective. Mm -hmm. And my summary of it would be that we know if there is a very high level of minimum wage, that destroys jobs, it creates the very opposite of the economic process that it intended to create, which was to help low-wage workers. They're priced out of jobs. On the other hand, if there's a moderate to low level of minimum wage, which is what you know US minimum wage has been for the last 30, 40 years, if small increase in the minimum wage doesn't seem to have much of an adverse effect on employment, and it might force employers to pay a little bit higher uh, wage to their workers while at the same time reorganizing work in such a way that perhaps the lowest pay workers are being a little bit more uh, productive. So in particular, uh, workers can be trained a little bit more when they have to be paid more so that they are actually able to uh, produce something commensurate with what they're being paid. Uh, the employers are going to use a little bit more capital to go with these workers. So at the lower levels, there are going to be a lot of options for employers to make adjustments that don't lead to huge job losses. So when we are talking of the federal minimum wage in the United States, that's still at the very low level. When we are sort of getting up to $15 an hour, now I think we are beyond the level where we are most comfortable that this is not going to create huge job losses. And if you think of $20, there we're really getting close to European or lower end of the European levels mm -hmm. of minimum wages, and we have to be much more careful. So you're on the outside of that debate. Let's talk about a debate that you're not on the outside. Let's discuss inequality. I'm going to pull uh, a quote of, of yours. The default position of economists is that inequality reflects unequal human capital or product productive capabilities. Some people make more than others commensurate to their contributions to their employees' 
to their employers. Why is that thesis wrong? I think there is a fairly broad consensus within economics that not all, but the bulk of inequality we observe in the labor market, and here I'm not talking about like you know uh, Warren Buffett making billions of dollars because he has billions of dollars to invest. So the fact that some engineer is being paid you know 15 times as much as a technician. We're talking laborers, labor not, not people investing capital. Exactly. That is related to the human capital, skills, talents, creativity, expertise, problem-solving ability of workers. Mm -hmm. It's not the whole thing because there is discrimination. It's not the whole thing because some people just turn out to be lucky. It's not the whole thing because some people get paid because they're doing really awful jobs and they need to be compensated for it. But the bulk of it is that human capital. But, and here is the big but, how that human capital is compensated is very much a function of technology and institutions. So by technology, for instance, I mean what's going on with robots, artificial intelligence, automation, all these new machines. Many of those may make certain types of skills and certain workers redundant and therefore act as a powerful generator of inequality. Mm -hmm. By institutions, I mean things like what we just talked about, minimum wage, unions, those are going to be able to sometimes protect certain segments of the population from wage drops. So as a result, let's make a cross-country comparison, US and Germany, two rich and highly complex economies. If you look at many trends like technology, how quickly they're adopting computers, robots, how their occupational structures are changing, there are many parallels between these two countries. But look at the wages, you see quite major differences. Inequality has also increased in Germany, but they haven't experienced the same extent of the bottom of the wage distribution falling out. In the United States, over the last 30 years, for instance, we see that workers at the bottom of the wage distribution, those, say, earning uh, less than the median wage. They've had a terrible run. They've had periods of 10, 15 years where their real earnings have fallen or they've been stagnant, and you don't see a parallel to that in Germany. Let, let's talk about another comparison across countries, and I pulled this from one of your earlier papers. The comparison between CEO and worker salary varies dramatically by country. In Japan, it's 11 to 1 between the CEO and the lowest paid worker. In Germany, it's 12 to 1. In the United States, it's almost 500 to 1. How does that sort of gap versus our closest economic competitors develop? It's exactly the same thing. It's these institutional aspects, but perhaps with a little bit of the globalization process working out a little bit differently. So, Wouldn't, wouldn't globalization similarly impact Japan and Germany? It does, and it is, but... And I don't think that's that's the most important part. But U.S. companies are more globalized, and that mm -hmm. has often led to more rewards for their CEOs, both for good and bad reasons. But I think the most important part is what's going on with the social norms and what's acceptable for CEOs to be paid. So Germany and Japan are very modern economies in mm -hmm. many ways, but they still have a sort of a corporatist culture left over, and that's got some costs, but it also creates a more cohesive internal organization for many structures, and it imposes that 
you know, a rising tide should lift all boats, at least within the company. So you cannot have the workers losing their wages and jobs in, in masses while the CEOs are getting tens Big of millions bonuses. of dollars of bonuses. And that's totally acceptable in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about technology. Uh, you wrote on robots and jobs, evidence from U.S. labor market, an analysis that looked at the effect of the increased use of industrial robots between 1990 and 2007 on, on the labor markets. What did you find? Summarizing it briefly, I would say we found that more robots is associated with lower employment and lower wages in the local labor market. The effects are not enormous, meaning that we're not talking millions of people losing their jobs or anything like that, but they are also large if you look at it from the viewpoint of what does the stock of robots that we have imply. And roughly speaking, what we are finding is something like one more robot is leading to the loss of jobs of between three to six workers in the local labor market. Now, that's not a huge effect because we don't have that many robots, but projecting it in the future, we have to be quite aware that we are going to be facing both great opportunities because these robots and artificial intelligence technologies are going to increase productivity, but huge challenges also. So let's not talk about robots a second. I want to talk about software and technology. I run a small office where 14 people, and I know based on my experience at firms 10 and 20 years ago, what we managed to do with 14 people, it would have taken 50 or 100 people 20 years ago. Everything from the content we generate to the sort of tax loss harvesting and portfolio rebalance, you push a button today, that used to be four accountants in green eye shades working for a week to, to get all that done. How significant, or let me, let me phrase that differently, is the fear that technology is going to take all our jobs away unfounded, or is there a genuine reason to be concerned? Yes and no. So let me put it this way. Let me first start with the yes part, which is that people are somewhat complacent about what the future of the labor market will look like. And that's for two reasons. The first one is that we are told, and with good reason, that technology is what brings economic growth, what brings prosperity. So why should we be afraid? Absolutely right. Second, there have been economists in the past, some of the greatest minds of our profession, who predicted the end of work. John Maynard Keynes, sure. the founder of macroeconomics, Leontief, Herbert Simon. And they didn't turn out to be right, at least in the medium term. So we say, why should it be different this time? But I think the truth of the matter is that many technologies and automation technologies and parts of software being examples of it, as well as robots, do displace workers. They replace workers in tasks that labor was previously performing, and they do it better, they do it faster, they do it more cheaply. The reason why this doesn't spell doom for the workforce is twofold. First of all, at the same time that they do that, they reduce costs, and as we become richer, 
we deploy these workers into other sectors. We consume more cars, we consume more information, we consume more widgets, and we consume more services, and all of these require workers. And secondly, we also create new tasks, new jobs, new industries to soak up all of the labor that's been freed from the tasks that they were previously performing. So it's a good picture on the one hand, but it's a difficult picture because it does involve people losing their jobs and going through the painful process of reallocation. And sometimes that process can be slow. Sometimes that process can be incomplete. And I think what we are finding with robots and what we are finding with some other automation technologies is that those pains of reallocation and in particular, perhaps because these technologies are a little bit more disruptive than other ones that we've implemented over the last 20 years, it's more painful. Let's talk about your book, Why Nations Fail, which uh, origins of power, prosperity, and poverty. Uh, this is really an epic magnum opus, which uh, ha has been wildly received and, and highly regarded. In the book, you talk about institutions, institutions, institutions. We discuss, you discuss how significant institutions are to a robust and well-functioning economy. How different is this framework for analyzing um, economic progress from, from what preceded? Anything in science builds on the shoulders of giants. I think we very much benefited, build on the work of others. Mm -hmm. Douglas North, who is a Nobel Prize winner, was the first person perhaps to really push this institutional perspective. But what we have done is go beyond that, try to explain a more varied sorts of economic and political relations with institutions, be much more systematic about how they work and bring both empirical and historical analysis to further understand how these institutional equilibria emerge and why these institutional trajectories diverge across countries. So define for us what is institutional drift? Here, we are talking of institutions as the broad organization of society. Who has political power? How do you regulate trade? How do you enforce property rights? How do courts function? Who has opportunities in society? And if you look at two societies that look very similar at a point in time, say go back to the 14th century, and observe them over decades, perhaps even centuries, what you're going to see is that even though they look similar at a certain point in time, they will start drifting apart a little bit. You're going to see that they're going to face somewhat different challenges. They're going to respond to these challenges a little differently. And the nature of the social relation is going to look quite different in 50 or 100 years. So you see that, for instance, in the Middle Ages, Eastern Europe and Western Europe at some point look very very similar. They have similar hierarchies, aristocrats and kings, and some parliamentary institutions, feudal labor relations, cities providing some industrial output. And then roll forward 100 years, and suddenly you see Western Europe has somewhat bigger cities, merchants are a little bit more assertive, feudal relations have just slightly eroded relative to Eastern Europe, and then 
that institutional drift comes into contact with a big shock, like a demographic collapse during the Black Death, mm -hmm. or new trading or political opportunities, and then those societies that have drifted a little bit apart suddenly see their trajectories diverge much more radically. So let's talk a little bit about the opposite sort of question, which is uh, you're building on the work of previous economists who looked at institutions. Where does traditional political science, sociology, or economics fail the evaluation of uh, poverty and economics? We, we have persistence, po persistent poverty in all sorts of places around the world. What are we misunderstanding about those geographies? I think understanding poverty is a very difficult question. So from a societal from a societal point of view, I mean, look at it this way: we live in such great comfort. We're uh, surrounded by widgets. The hardest type of work is gone. We have amazing abundance around us, and then we think, what's going on in parts of sub-Saharan Africa? People have access to income per capita, daily income, one fiftieth or one eightieth of what we have here. It's just so difficult for us to understand how that could exist in this globalized, connected, unified world. It is a difficult problem, but we have also failed to some degree because we have gone after some somewhat facile answers, such as geography or mm -hmm. culture or oh, just it's uh, inspired leadership that gets out of us out of poverty. And I think the truth of the matter is that you really need to think much more systematically about what opportunities people have, what incentives they have to use those opportunities. And then that's going to bring you to these institutional equilibria that we've already talked about briefly. Why are economic institutions different? Why political institutions are different? Why is it that people in Sierra Leone or Chad or the Central African Republic don't have those opportunities? Why don't they try to create those opportunities? And you see there, you really need to get into the details of these political equilibria. Who has political power? What do they benefit from? How is it that they can get away with creating wealth for themselves and poverty for millions? So let's talk about extractive institutions. What are extractive institutions and how do they differ from the traditional rent-sinking epithet we've seen tossed about. So what I just described a second ago without using the term, uh, where are the extractive institutions? Extractive institutions are any institutional arrangement that enable a group of people to extract resources directly or indirectly from the rest of society. And they do so by creating a tilted playing field, mm -hmm. by destroying opportunities, <coughs> and by destroying incentives for the rest of society. So it is similar to what people talk of rent-seeking, but it's broader because when you talk of rent-seeking, you know, you're thinking of corruption and what government officials do or sometimes what some businesses might do in- uh, Crony capitalism. In, co in cahoots sure. with the politicians as in the crony capitalism. But extractive institutions, by putting the- emphasis on this opportunity incentive and the tilted playing field brings out the parallels between, say, a system like what you had in Egypt under Mubarak, where every businessman had to be connected to his NDP party and mm -hmm. give him kickbacks, to, say, feudal Europe, where you don't have corruption, you don't have 
any one of those things, but you have a system that makes people servile labor produce under coercion, and the benefits go to a well-defined group of people. You discuss equality in terms of political power, opportunity, and economic outcomes. Does more equality always equal more prosperity? No, because we need the economic system to reward success. Mm-hmm. And that means there will have to be some inequality. You cannot, you cannot reward economic success if you pay everybody the same amount. And rewarding success means that some families are going to do better than others. But what's important is not just whether we have equality or inequality of outcomes. That matters. And excessive inequality of outcomes could be quite costly for society, but what matters much more is whether we have equality of opportunity and whether we have political inequality. So by inequality or equality of opportunity, I mean the same thing as I was referring to with the tilted playing field. If you qualify for the best jobs and I don't because of my hair color, skin color, social class, that means it's inequality of opportunity. Go back to the apartheid system under uh, uh, in South Africa before it collapsed in 1994. 80% of the population, black South Africans, not only could they not go to school, uh, high-quality school, or could they not become policemen or politicians or anything like that, but they could not perform any one of about over 100 semi-skilled or skilled occupations. They couldn't become technicians. They couldn't become teachers. They couldn't become foremen. So that was an extreme version of this tilted playing field, a huge amount of inequality of opportunity. But it could take more subtle forms. You know, in the United States, everybody's free to do whatever they want. But, you know, if you grow up in inner city and you don't get access to high-quality schooling, you're not going to be able to be competitive against people who go to the best schools. So that's the inequality of opportunity. But even more pernicious is political inequality. You know, the United States was viewed as the country of the common man. Robert Dahl, a sort of prominent political scientist, you know, he asked the question, who rules? And his answer was, the common man rules. That was 45 years ago. Today, we have a political system where the rich are much more vocal than the regular person. So political inequality has crept in. Who do our congressmen or senators listen to? The very rich. Whoever's writing them a check. Whoever's writing them a check. Whose policy positions are reflected in their campaigns? Whoever is writing the check, whoever is more visible, whoever is more vocal. And I think that's the political inequality we have to watch out against. We have been speaking with Professor Darren Asamoglu of MIT, author of the book, Why Nations Fail. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras. You can find those at iTunes, Bloomberg.com, and SoundCloud. We keep the tape rolling, continuing to talk about all things economic. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, if you would like to read any of the professor's uh, written work, his papers are all available on his MIT page. Just Google Darren Asamoglu and you'll be presented with a wealth of reading opportunity. You can also check out his book, Why Nations Fail, Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 
What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Professor, for doing this. I've been um, looking forward to chatting with you for a long time. I find your work absolutely intriguing. And I didn't say this in the introduction, but I wasn't exaggerating. Your CV is literally 18 pages long. People give me grief. I'm like, no, I have a, a page and a half. That's that's a CV. I'm a piker. Um, and I, you also make all of your papers readily available, which not and everybody data. does. And all of the data. Not everybody does that. I, I was up late last night reading a run of different um, PDFs, which I found quite... Quite interesting. I threw away a bunch of questions and reworked um, a bunch of others. I know I only have you for a, a finite amount of time before you have to run back to the conference, but there's some questions I didn't get to that I have to ask before I jump into some of my standard questions. We, we talked about inequality. We talked about technology, but we didn't talk about the impact of technology on inequality. What does technology mean in terms of increased globalization, and what does it mean in terms of rising levels of inequality. You know, technology is what creates prosperity, but that prosperity is not equally distributed. If you look at robots or automation, they help some workers much more than others. In particular, many of these technologies displace certain groups of workers, and they're not going to translate into higher earnings for these workers, while the managers or the more skilled workers who are being complemented by these technologies are going to be the winners. So economists talk of skill-biased technological change, and that's what we have experienced over the last 60, 70 years in terms of the effects of technology. That's not to say that all of the increase in equality in the United States is an outcome of technology. I don't think you can explain why the top 0.1% is doing so well just by technology, but a lot of it is really a technological phenomenon. So you mentioned the top 0.1%. I love this uh, data set I pulled from one of your pieces. You wrote the 0.1% in the United States accounts for 8% of the national income. In other countries, that's more like 1% or 2%. And in the 1950s, in the U.S., it was more like 3%. So how did the top 0.1% capture so much of the national income? Is that a function of tax policy? Is that a function of um, stock options? What accounts for uh, the, the tripling of income capture by um, that 0.1% of the population. All of the above. It's a huge phenomenon, and its consequences are really transformative. The Occupy movement, mm -hmm. the Tea Party, what's going on right now with all sorts of populism. I think they're all related to- Around the, the world or Around the, the world or and in the United States. They're all related to this feeling, and it's the reality also, that the pie is being distributed more and more unequally. And when we look at that top point, uh, top 0.1%, Technology has played a role, but I think changing institutions, changing tax policy, and changing social norms are very important also. We talked about CEOs. It's not just that CEOs are 
so much more productive today than they were 25 years ago, but it's become more acceptable for them to be paid huge stock options and especially being paid huge sums while they're laying off workers or cutting wages at the bottom of their organization. So another data point I pulled from one of your uh, papers, not so much about the 0.1%, but generally about the widening um, inequality gap, you wrote, um, the gap between relatively high earners, meaning 90th percentile of income distribution, versus the bottom 10 percentile has widened uh, also. Same factors driving that gap? Because well, you're not talking CEOs necessarily, right. yes. but you're talking professional class top 10 percent, a little different than than that one or or 0.1 percent. I think the same factors, but their relative importance would be different. I think mm -hmm. technology is really the dominant factor when we are thinking about, say, the workers at the shop floor versus the technicians, engineers, or the middle managers. So back to your institutional focus, clearly technical skills, a high-end education is going to make a big difference in, in those sort of folks. Ob income. Obviously, and I think part of it is that we have to run faster in terms of upgrading our skills, creating the skills for the new age. Otherwise, the bottom is not going to benefit. That's across the entire uh, economic strata. Everybody Absolutely. has to move Absolutely. Faster. We have to be more flexible. We have to be more adaptable. This was really fascinating quote. Um, and a lot of this comes, this is going to come back to a lot of the same answers, but the quote is so interesting. The quest for general laws of capitalism is misguided because it ignores the key forces shaping how an economy functions, namely how the gains from various different economic arrangements are distributed. So when you talk about the, the quest for general laws of, of capitalism, what you're really saying is it's not the input that matters, it's the output that's so significant. Right, absolutely. And I think, again, this goes back to social scientists' desire to simplify things. And we always seek to find commonalities, and that's great, but sometimes we see commonalities where none exist. Mm -hmm. So there is this effort to find some general trends and ways in which all capitalist economies function. And I think that's so misguided at some level. You know, look at Egypt. I think under Mubarak, Egypt is a private ownership economy. There mm -hmm. are capitalists. They own the firms. They act in profit-maximizing profit, profit maximizing manner. Labor markets, you know, people uh, decide how much to pay for the workers that they hire. But the Egyptian economy has so little in common with the United States. I would say it has much more in common with North Korea. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think this sort of looking for general laws of capitalism is, is a misguided activity. So let's jump into some of my favorite questions I ask all my guests. Um, your background, you pretty much went from LSE to MIT. You've been in academia your whole career. Yeah, no real job. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on ever leaving academia, or is that your home for the foreseeable future? I like what I do. I enjoy what I do. I mean, I can't. I would have never thought people would be paying me good money for <laughs> investigating things I find interesting and sharing my thoughts. You know, most people do that over a glass of beer. Right. That that sounds like a fun uh, a fun job. Uh, let's talk about some of your early mentors. Who who are the people who influenced your thinking when you were first uh, beginning your career? I, many people shaped the way I think about it, but 
you know, perhaps it's my character, perhaps it's the topics that I focused on. I did not strictly follow anybody. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, you know, people I found inspiring, you know, Bob Solo, who was mm -hmm. uh, a Nobel Prize winner, thinking about economics, like economics. His work was hugely influential, but I went in a very different direction. Uh, Bang Holmstrom, who was an early mentor for me, who was the Nobel Prize winner this year and is a good friend of mine, you know, I found him very inspiring, both his approach, but but I approached things very differently mm -hmm. uh, than he did and went in a very different direction. You know, when I started thinking of the bigger picture questions, you know, I read Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. Sure. I thought that was spellbounding. You know, it's was, he was so good at bringing different pieces of information on the table and making it interesting. And I very much try to emulate that. You know, James Robinson and I, when we wrote Why Nations Fail, we said, well, we're going to try to learn from Jared, but at the end of the day, our thesis is so different from Jared's. Mm -hmm. We were triggered to write the book in some sense because we have a very different story to tell. So in some sense, my mentors are often the people I sort of learn from, but moved away from also. Pushed back against or, or, or head in a different direction. Who, who's influencing your thinking today? Oh, that's a difficult question. That is a difficult question, isn't it? <laughs> economics is a very broad tent. Mm -hmm. Doesn't, by the I, way, it doesn't have to be economics. It could right. be any subject, anybody sure. who's making you think about whatever. Well, you know, in economics, often the people who make me think differently are the people I work with closely. Mm -hmm. You know, in the context of technology, for instance. I've been working on and off with my colleague David Otter, and I've learned so much from him in terms of thinking about the role of technology and how it affects different tasks and different types of workers, but also on the political aspect, sort of the bringing the politics and the economics together. You know, I have for a long time been building on the work that Doug North did mm -hmm. as I mentioned, but for instance, his collaborator Barry Weingast, very much, you know, when we, whenever I turn to a different area, I see Barry has also written on that. Again, I differ from him in many ways, but it's always influential and fascinating. Let's let's talk about authors. Not again, not necessarily economics. What books? What authors uh, influence you? You mentioned um, Guns, Germs, and Steels. Steel. What other books did you find especially? interesting, worthwhile, or influential? You know, early on, I think I started reading a lot of the history of how the Western world was shaped, and many of the authors who sort of tried to capture that in a broad social science framework were hugely influential on me. Fernand Braudel, Marc Bloch, the sort of French historians, and then again, Douglas North and his uh, collaborator, Robert Thomas. In all of these instances, I found what they did fascinating, but also insufficient. So I try to sort of build and, and move away from them in some sense. But also, you know, many authors uh, who have written beyond, uh, you know, the, the social sciences have been hugely influential uh, you know, more most recently, I've enjoyed Paul Oster and uh, Hilary Mantel's recent books, but uh, I always find sort of 
different approaches to literature as inspiring as uh, as reading the history or the economics of it? So since you've joined the world of economics, what has been the sea changes? What are the major shifts that took place that are are noteworthy, especially in your space? Obviously, Piketty's publication was one. What what else do you think is a— uh, Well, the two that I would mention that I think are much more deep-rooted and will have longer-run effects on economics is—and this is, of course, from my vantage point— the importance of institutions. You mm-hmm. know, it's not again that people didn't realize institutional factors matter, but it's now become such an inseparable, vital part of economics. Political economy, how institutions context determines how different technological, demographic, and other factors impact the economy. I think that's now second nature to many economists. Second, technology. You know, for a long time, we thought of technology as just a fairly uniform process. It improves productivity. It then leads to higher wages. And now we are seeing that technology does lots of good things, but creates lots of challenges also, displacing workers, creating unemployment, sometimes reducing wages, increasing inequality, creating hugely costly, socially difficult adjustment processes. And I think in the next 20 years, we're going to see both more of that, but as an economics profession, as social science, we're also going to get much deeper into it. So the coming shifts are more focus on institutions, more focus on technology, anything else we haven't really noticed? What What's going to surprise us in the next few decades that I'm really asking what what shift is coming that people haven't really given a lot of thought to? Organizations. I think we are going to see very different organizations and how organizations are able or are not able to change is going to be a crucial factor in our ability to use technology to create prosperity. Organizational economics has been another growth area within economics, but I think the challenge of understanding how organizations are able to recreate, reshape themselves in the face of technology, that's an area we have to be much more serious about. So the next few questions comes from readers and listeners. Uh, we, We get these on occasion. Tell us about a time you failed. What did you learn from the experience, and how different was that experience in terms of learning than a than a success? Well, I mean, my beginning in the economics profession was just a huge failure. Really, I came out of the PhD program at the London School of Economics, and and uh, I thought I could just take my PhD dissertation and all of my ideas and write them as papers and publish them in good places. And I tried that, and then one rejection after another. And then I realized I wasn't ready, that I wasn't, you know, writing just the right way. I had to improve my exposition. And some of my ideas were, I think, still not bad because they became the basis of a lot of the more influential work that I did later, but they weren't they weren't totally accepted at the time and I wasn't making the right effort to uh to to make them presentable and understandable for the for the audience. So I came close to saying, look, I'm going to throw in the towel. It's been like three years since my <laughs> PhD. I'm still not getting, going anywhere. But then uh, the, the problem was with me. The failure was largely my fault, and I learned. And then once that learning was 
partly done, I was able to improve myself, my research, and my ability to appeal and communicate with others. What do you do for fun or relaxation outside of the office, outside of work? What's relaxation? <laughs> you know, I have two young boys. Mm-hmm. They don't allow me to relax, but it's fun. Okay, that's a fair, fair enough answer. You work with uh, a lot of students, a lot of millennials. What sort of advice would you give to someone who came to you uh, and said, I'm interested in a career in economics? What would you advise them? Be serious about it. You know, what I mean by that is don't lose your humor or sense of playfulness, but just invest, invest, invest. Learn more history, learn more math, learn more statistics, learn more of the context and try to bring them together. Most of the good ideas we have come from synthesizing existing lines of thoughts in a new way. And for that, you really need to have a lot of background in many different fields. And I think people often don't realize that they specialize in something, they do their homework, but they just don't invest in that reservoir of knowledge that's going to be necessary for going to the next stage. And our final question, what is it that you know about economics today that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were first getting started? Boy, I mean, I think if I knew the things that I think I've found out in the last 25 years, I don't know I what I would have done. Because first of all, there wouldn't have been all this amazement that was in front of me that motivated me to 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 go after them but of course if i had an inkling of the things that i sort of discovered later on say 10 15 years after my sort of after the beginning of my career of course i could have gone there much faster i could have started working on this issue of how technology is a much more complex phenomenon that displaces workers and creates both the gains and the losses or this sort of institutional equilibria that you know really was was there part of my interest from the beginning but it really sort of matured over time but i think it would have taken the fun away i think that struggle mm. that failure discovering it slowly that's what really sort of made it worthwhile the journey not the destination exactly We have been speaking with Professor Darren Asimoglu of MIT, author of the book, Why Nations Fail. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up or down an inch on Apple iTunes or on Bloomberg or SoundCloud for any of the other 147 or so such previous conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker and producer, Michael Batnick, my head of research and Medina Parwana, my recording engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC.